Over 300 brands over some time have all committed to banning Angora from their collections. So now it would be very difficult to find Angora on the high street. And that is just one thing that shows how effective PETA and our international affiliates are in our work. And I'm really proud to be part of this organization, to be part of this change. There are lots of organizations out there that work on fur, but there aren't that many that speak out against the use of leather, mohair, cashmere, exotic skins, all of the other animal skins that are still used in the fashion industry today, but there are every bit as cruel and unnecessary as fur is. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we meet the wonderful Sasha Kameli. Sasha is an author, a magazine entrepreneur, a public speaker, and an expert in vegan and secondhand fashion. With a background in international fashion journalism, she was selected to take part in the 2013 Marie Claire UK Inspire and Mentor Scheme, which helped her launch the world's first digital vegan fashion magazine, Valida. In 2019, Sasha was selected as one of the glamour magazine's 50 most empowering new gen activists. Sasha's first book, Vegan Style, Your Plant-Based Guide to Fashion, Beauty, Home and Travel, was published in 2019. She has also been a Huffington Post blogger and a fashion writer here on Plant-Based News. She currently writes for Vegan Food and Living as well as the Australian magazine Nourish and an ethical living website Eco Warrior Princess. Sasha is a frequent public speaker holding lectures on ethical fashion at events such as VegFest and Vision in Sweden and at universities such as Coventry, Cardiff University, London Metropolitan University and of course Central St. Martins too. As with all the episodes, if you do enjoy them, please don't forget to comment like and share on social media and if you're on itunes if you can leave us a review it really helps get the message out there let's get to the episode thanks so much for joining us on the show thank you so so much for having me it's great to be here as with all my guests uh, before we sort of talk about everything you're doing now and all the uh, very cool stuff that you're getting involved with at the moment let's go back in time and uh, tell us your vegan story so i actually stopped eating meat when i was about 11 and as soon as I knew what meat was, I knew I wanted nothing to do with that because I've always felt a very strong affinity for animals since I was really, really young. But as many other people, I thought meat was necessary and that we had to eat it. But then I met a friend of my mom's who was actually a vegetarian. And I realized that we don't have to. There are people who have perfectly nice lives and eat great food without eating meat. So that's when I stopped eating meat, but it took me a really long time to learn the facts about the rest of the animal abusing industries, such as dairy and eggs, and even fish. For a long time, I was under this illusion that fish have, a, at least they have a good life in the ocean. And I was just very uninformed. And when I did learn the information, I once again had the idea that being vegan would be so difficult and it would be so restrictive and I would have problems going out to eat and that sort of thing. But then I read a book called Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer and it completely broke my heart. So, Jonathan, here's some questions. Uh, someone says they used to be a vegetarian. They, they weren't getting enough protein and iron. Doctor said, I have to go back to eating meat. What do you say to that? You have to get a new doctor. I mean, <laughs> the, the American Dietetic Association, which is the gold standard for nutrition in, in our country, says exactly the opposite. They say not only do you not have to seek out more protein, but that vegetarians have a more optimal protein intake than meat eaters. So this is a lie. It's been sold to you and you should resist it. I know that book ha has had this effect on many other people, but um, even for me, who already was a vegetarian, I wasn't using any animal-tested makeup and that sort of thing, that book had such a profound effect on me. And I thought, I don't care if it's difficult. I don't care how hard it is. I, I cannot be part of this anymore. And that was around the same time that I was moving to London from Italy, where I was living at the time. And when I arrived in London... I just had this amazing experience when I realized how many vegan options were out there and how non-difficult this was going to be. It was so much easier than I could ever have imagined. And this was eight years ago before we even had all, even half of the amazing vegan options we have now. So it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And I'm so happy that I've been vegan for almost eight years. 
Amazing. It's about about roughly the same time as me. Uh, oh, really? Uh, I think that some of my friends call it the Cowspiracy generation, or sort mm. of the generation of people who were shifted by the new media or social media, as, as we as we call it today. Talk us through that your food culture as a child, and sort of you know what was your relationship with food. So my background is actually a little bit confusing. I was born in Russia, and I lived in Russia until oh, wow. I was six, and then I moved to Sweden. And then I've also lived in the States for a little bit, and I've lived in Italy for six years. For me, a part of my childhood was spent in Russia, and part of it was spent in Sweden. But as a family, I have to say, we always appreciated good food. Russian families, every time there's something to celebrate, there's lots and lots of food on the table. Food is a huge part of celebrations. It's part of cultural traditions. Most traditional Russian foods do include meat or dairy in some form. I have to say, when my vegetarian awakening happened, my family uh, was not too shocked by it because, as I said, my mom, uh, her best friend was a vegetarian and she's always been. I think my parents were expecting it to be a phase, as many parents do. Well, (laughs) easy to say it was not a phase. And now my sister is a vegan as well. So there's two of us in the family. But as a food culture, I have to say there was a lot of focus on food. I wasn't too, I never felt pressured to go back to eating meat or anything like that because uh, most people around me at school as well, my friends, uh, most people knew someone who was a vegetarian. Most people uh, were aware of vegetarianism. Of course, my grandmother didn't understand what I was doing or what the point of it even was. And she comes from a generation where people didn't question eating animals much. She grew up on a farm and obviously there were all of these discussions about these animals are bred to be eaten and that kind of argument. But generally, I have to say it was quite um, like a smooth transition when I was a child into being a a vegetarian child. And at school, it was quite easy as well. I was not the only one. There were a few of us. Um, The vegetarian options at my school, everyone loved those. Everyone wanted to have some of my food. So I have to say I, I had quite a positive experience as a vegetarian child. Well, that's good. It makes a change, I think, because I think we do live in this society where eating meat and consuming animal products is almost seen like a necessity. And I've talked about it a lot on this podcast, how people feel that pressure, that cultural pressure, that if you don't eat like everybody else, you're an outsider, you're you're a you're a freak, you know, and especially for men, you know, I've talked to many men about this, how they have this this almost pathological obsession with meat because they worry that if they don't eat and they don't consume it, that it's going to be an affront to their manhood or their masculinity. The irony is, as we know from watching films like The Game Changers, that in fact, you know, it can actually affect your, well, I, I dare say manliness because that's very gender, <laughs> gender stereotypical, but it, it can affect the hormones in your body and it can affect your masculine uh, qualities. So the, the, the opposite is in fact true. But obviously, you know, growing up in that kind of culture where meat meat was so um, such so much an, an important part of the culture. I mean, what was it within you that made you different from other people? Do you think? Like, how did you? I always ask people this: like, how do you feel that you were different from other other people? Because I always find it remarkable when young people, young children, have these realizations uh, when many don't. What I mean. So, what what do you think made you different? Yes, I think on that level, I've uh, always felt that feeling as strongly as I did about animals. Um, when When I was a child, I really felt that that made me different. And when I came to work at PETA, I met several other people who have stopped eating meat, even younger than me. Some of them were 10, 9, 6 years old. And I realized that they must have had a similar experience to what I had when I was little. And that was that I felt like sometimes maybe I was made to feel like I was too sensitive or too emotional because I reacted so strongly to animal suffering. Anything, anywhere that had anything to do with an animal being in distress or being in pain in books and or in movies, it really hit me hard when I was a child. It uh, really stayed with me for days, for weeks. It could really make me very, very upset when I was young to know that animals suffered. And Of course, I'm not saying that people around me were insensitive or anything like that, but I've always felt that I've empathized more or 
like felt animal suffering much more strongly than other people and even more so when I was a child, I think. Yeah, I, I feel you. I think there's a story that came out in the news recently about this dolphin they called Honey, uh, who was kept in this horrible swimming pool in, a, in an abandoned, I think it was a resort of some sort. I spoke to my mum today and she's she was deeply upset and heartbroken about this beautiful being who has been imprisoned really in many ways. Um, and she said it's affected her for days and she's felt physically sick. And I think a lot of people feel the pain of others and they feel the, the emotions of others. I was always the same as a child, always struggled to maintain my emotion. and was always, especially being a boy, growing up a boy, I was picked on and verbally abused and bullied for being emotional, for being more sensitive and always felt I needed to hide it. And as a man, always felt that desire to hide that aspect or, or shroud that aspect of myself because our society teaches us, well, it believes that, that it's a weakness, that sensitivity, emotion, intelligence uh, compassion and gentle nature is a weakness but i i don't i think it's i feel it's our strength um i think it's our great the greatest strength of humanity with with the sort of compassionate nature of human beings um do you think that we are innately compassionate kind creatures or do you think it's something that we all have to learn so you know do you, do you feel like you learned that quality or do you think you were born with it so it's interesting what you say about um males and boys being made to feel like being compassionate is a sign of weakness i remember i talked to joshua catcher who's the founder of brave gentlemen i interviewed him for my magazine a while ago about um, masculinity and veganism and he said i don't remember exactly how he phrased it but his uh, message was that men are taught that they have to be strong but what do strong people do they protect the ones who uh, who need protection. So actually, compassion is the biggest sign of strength that it, that there is. And I thought that was so brilliant. I've never heard that take of on that before, and that was very interesting. I think that as children, we are. I think we do have an innate sense of compassion and empathy. Most children have a natural affinity for and empathy with animals. I think that somewhere along the way, we are taught to not be selfish, but to think to our own needs and wants. And we're kind of uh, brought into a culture of this is just how it is. And we're just told to accept that and not question things. And I think generally, you are made to believe as you grow up that being too emotional and too sentimental is not is not the way to to be it's not the way the adults are it's not the way strong people are uh, and you're kind of brought away from your natural you're taken away from your natural empathy and your natural compassion but i do think that we're born with a sense of empathy for for other living beings definitely yeah, absolutely. I often see it as a se like a seed that it needs to be watered and nourished um, and fostered in people, and that I think that's what's missing in our society is being trained in compassion, being being having that quality drawn out of us and 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 have it celebrated. And we don't do that enough, I think. And we do live in a society that rewards selfishness, that rewards self centeredness. That our society, that's why things like celebrity have become so popular in modern society, because it is all about you and what you can get and what you can achieve, being the top of the pyramid, being the most successful, the most glamorous, and the most beautiful. And then the other qualities like kindness and gentleness and friendship and community and all that, they're kind of left at the bottom of the pile. Um, there was an experiment done a few decades ago uh, where children were given a list of qualities. And this was in the 50s. And the you know hundreds of children were asked this and the top quality in the 50s uh, in the USA was kindness and it was that was you know what they chose and it made sense for that time and today you know I think it was done maybe 10 years ago 10 maybe maybe less the top quality that children picked was fame they wanted to be famous and and it really speaks to the state of the world that you know we live in a time where people would prefer to be famous than to be kind to others that it you know obviously it's a it's a study is not necessarily a sign of proof but it certainly is 
a sign of the times and you only have to look at out at society and see the way people behave towards each other towards animals that we do live and live in a fundamentally selfish self-absorbed world and if you're listening to this uh, recording in the future where the the world is currently in the grips of the covid-19 coronavirus pandemic where you know most of the western well most of the world a huge population of the world are locked inside not locked inside but we're self isolating um and uh, i feel a lot of people are reevaluating and questioning the very nature of our society <laughs> which is interesting but how are you how are you getting on with this uh, current situation how is it affecting your mental health or your work are you able to continue to sort of do the work that you do so yes we are continuing to do what we do because even in a pandemic um, animals are still suffering and they do need our help more than ever if anything we should ramp up the work that we do because in some parts of the world more animals are being abandoned um, animal shelters are definitely feeling uh, the strain of the crisis obviously some countries suffer more than others but here in the UK as well um, organizations that care about animals have had to close down or limit their intake of animals. And it's just um, all around the effects of the crisis are being felt. So we at PETA are especially trying to bring forward a message of how people can help animals in this uh, in this situation and how people can stay active while they are isolating or while they're locked indoors. Coronavirus has helped us put life into jarring perspective. Our society is apparently mainly defined by being able to eat out, go to bars and buy and sell stuff. Even in lockdown, we can still eat a lot, drink and buy and sell sell stuff, but apparently that isn't enough. Some of the modifications we've made now should surely remain in place forever. And I say that on behalf of the herds of elk who have returned to wander the Oregon coastline and bathe in the eddies between the sandbars, the monkeys who swim unmolested now in abandoned hotel pools in Mumbai, the bulls who are now spared slipping and sliding and breaking a leg or two before being tortured to death in Pamplona, and the horses, who are peacefully grazing rather than being pumped full of performance-enhancing drugs at the racetrack. The air is cleaner now, the pace is more relaxed, and with human ingenuity, I know that we can find other ways to look after those who are less well-off than ourselves and start respecting the natural world. For now, the goats and the deer who are venturing out to graze on lawns that were once their ancestral homelands, and the bears and the lions in parks in other parts of the world welcome our lockdown. What an indictment. Perhaps when we again have the chance to live as we please, to go where we wish, we can modify our greed and dress and buy things and entertain ourselves without harming others. Let's not be quick to celebrate the return of commerce and our freedom. We must be more aware of the consequences of what we do so casually, but which affects others so mightily and emerge from this pandemic as moral agents, kinder and more aware of how our lives impact those whose world we reduce and those who have been forced into the margins. It's still a good time to um, think about animals and think about how you can um, stay active and we are definitely staying active. And other PETA affiliates, such as PETA US, are still going out into low-income communities and bringing food and necessities to animals whose guardians aren't able to care for them like they uh, used to. PETA Asia do uh, lots of animal rescue work in the Philippines. Yeah, we're definitely still staying active. Hi, I'm Jack Harries for PETA. Experts agree that the novel coronavirus most likely originated at a wet market in China. Yet, disease-ridden markets like these are still open around the world. A wet market is a kind of hell on earth, where living and dead animals, including bats, rats and frogs, are sold for human consumption. 
terrified animals are confined to cages that are stacked on top of each other. Floors and countertops are smeared with feces, blood and urine. It's easy to see why these places are breeding grounds for disease. Raising animals for food in the UK also contributes to the risk of pandemics. On British farms, stressed animals are crammed into cages or sheds by the thousands and pumped full of antibiotics to keep them alive in filthy conditions that would otherwise kill them. Like wet markets, these settings provide the perfect opportunity for deadly pathogens to jump from animals to humans. Today, three out of every four new or emerging infectious diseases come from animals, mainly via the wildlife trade or factory farming. Unless we stop exploiting animals, and soon, there will be more pandemics to come. So please, join me in calling for live animal markets to be shut down, and take personal responsibility for reducing the risk of killer pandemics by adopting a plant-based diet. Thank you. As far as I'm concerned, I usually work remotely, so not a huge deal has changed for me. It's obviously, it's a very strange situation we're in, but we are finding new ways to uh, bring our message across and, and stay active for the animals who need us. So you mentioned Peter. Uh, tell us a bit about the organization, how you got involved in it and what it means to you to sort of be a part of it because it's quite an interesting organization. It's been around for quite a long time. Um, if you check out our YouTube channel, I did an interview with the founder, Ingrid, and she's an incredibly inspiring woman. Um, Peter obviously is quite a divisive organization, not just within the uh, non-vegan community, but also within the vegan community as well. You know, what is it like working in such a sort of like maverick organization? Because it's quite, you know, Peter's known for its very, bold campaigns and it's quite outlandish kind of ways of advocating for veganism. I decided to leave, uh, my background is in the fashion industry and I decided to leave it about maybe five years ago uh, because I was feeling a bit like a hypocrite, but like I was spending entire days writing about leather shoes or cashmere jumpers and I knew that I did not support this, uh, so I decided to look for um, a new career path somewhere where I could actually speak out for what I believed in. And I had been, uh, I'd gotten involved with PETA, I think, when I moved to London. I started volunteering for PETA. They had volunteer events at the time, and I also volunteered as a translator because I speak Swedish. And when a job came up, I decided to to go for it because I realized that my background in fashion and my background in journalism could actually be put to good use for this organization. And it's been an amazing, amazing ride so far. These five years have been unbelievable. I've had an incredible learning curve in all things animal rights. I have been able to use my fashion background in working with journalists to take them shopping for vegan fashion or one editor at Elle I worked with who didn't wear, who only wore vegan clothing for a week. I hope she still wears a lot of vegan clothes. I have done things like persuade Helsinki Fashion Week to drop leather from the catwalks and lots of other things where I can use uh, my skills, my passions and my background to speak out for this cause that I really believe in. And also one amazing thing about PETA is being surrounded by people who all believe so much in what they do. Uh, I can really see a difference between uh, my other jobs where it was for most people, and including for me, it was a job. We all kind of liked it. We were okay with it. We showed up in the morning, did our work, and went home, and that was sort of it. And it was just a job for most of us. Whereas this is, it's more than just, you know, doing your nine to five. It's you're spending your days trying to change the world, really, and trying to speak up for for animals and speak up for change. And one amazing thing is seeing change actually happen. Uh, since I've started, I've seen so many amazing victories. For example, our Angora campaign that I uh, worked a lot on before PETA uh, and the Angora investigations, people in the fashion industry and even people who 
commonly wore Angora sweaters. People didn't even know what Angora was or where it came where it came from. For those who don't know, um, can you tell us a bit about what is what is Angora? Because I don't know if everyone will know exactly what that is. Of course. So Angora is a material that's commonly used in knitwear, so in jumpers, in kind of woolly garments. It is a form of wool. It comes from rabbits. And 90% of all angora in the world comes from China. China has no animal protection laws uh, at all. But even if it's not uh, from China, even if it's from another country, all angora is uh, produced in a way that is very cruel and very painful to rabbits who commonly live in small tiny little cages and the only time they get to leave these cages is not to see the sun or to play with other rabbits it's to be strapped down to a wooden board and have a worker tear tear the hair out of their bodies while they are fully conscious so the video that everyone can see on our website is it's horrifying especially just the sound of it just the sounds of the rabbits screaming will if you watch it, it will just stay with you forever. Um, it is. It's like a sound of a child screaming. Exactly. It's the most for me. For me, I've, I've I unfortunately have experienced a lot of animal abuse growing up because I grew up on a farm and I grew up in a very rural part of the world. So I kind of witnessed it and became quite numb to to that aspect. But you know, the sounds of animal suffering, the screaming of pigs as they're lowered into gas chambers, the screaming of uh, rabbits as they have the hair pulled off them. You know, those sounds they those kind of I don't know whether it is what it is about that sense but it, it's like you say it stays with you it kind of in a way echoes around your brain you can always hear it and if you sort of go to that memory it it's just it seems to have the strongest effect really I don't know if you if you agree oh definitely yeah it's uh it's a very it's very haunting and yeah the sound is very very chilling so when that investigative footage was released over 300 brands over some time have all committed to banning Angora from their collections. So now it would be very difficult, actually, to find Angora on the high street. And that is just one thing that shows how effective PETA and our international affiliates are in our work. And I'm really proud to be part of this organization, to be part of this change. And to, especially in my area of fashion, um, there are lots of organizations out there that work on fur, uh, which is great. But there aren't that many that speak out against the use of leather or mohair, cashmere, exotic skins, all of the other animal skins that are still used in the fashion industry today, but there are every bit as cruel and unnecessary as furs. Yeah, that's the thing. I think leather is an interesting one. It's almost a sort of this hidden material that a lot of people see as a byproduct. Where has the kind of rhetoric come from that leather is a byproduct? Because I think a lot of vegetarians who don't eat meat, who care about animals, wear leather because they automatically assume or being told that it's a byproduct. Where Where's that being perpetuated from? So it doesn't actually even make sense if you're a vegetarian, because if you're not eating the meat, then why, even if it were a byproduct, why would you use it if, if you're not eating? I don't know. <laughs> That's really strange. Yeah, um, a lot of people have that idea that leather is a byproduct. I think it comes from the fact that it is the same animal. And people still tend to see food as something that's more justified than other areas. When I talk to people about animal use, sometimes uh, people say that, of course, they're against animal testing for things as, such as cosmetics and, you know, all of the luxury fashion such as exotic skins or fur. But food, food is necessary. We have to eat. And that opens up a, a whole different discussion of the fact that we don't need to eat animal products. But there's also the issue that, you know, food is, is seen as this, well, it's a necessity. So it's anything that we do for food is somehow justified. And um, since cows are used both for leather and for meat, I suppose people assume that it's the same cows being slaughtered for both purposes. But if you look at uh, some of the photos we have on our website from uh, investigations into the leather trade in Bangladesh, for example, there are pictures of cows uh, who 
were later slaughtered for their skins. And you can see how, how skinny they are, how malnourished they look. There's just no chance that these cows were killed to end up on someone's plate because there simply isn't enough meat on them to make meat out of them. It, they were killed for their skin. So leather is, it's a co-industry that coexists with the meat trade, but it's not dependent on it um, because skins can be more lucrative than meat. So it's actually an industry that exists as all other industries because of demand. And I think that is changing. It's a very interesting time for vegan leather um, because there are so many amazing natural leather alternatives being developed now, such as pineapple leather, wine leather, apple leather, mushroom leather. There are all of these amazing, natural, sustainable materials that uh, you can make leather from. So it's just animal skins are definitely becoming obsolete. But the uh, the other side of the conversation, and this is the, n- the sort of non-vegan rhetoric, is they're not as durable, that leather is a pretty strong uh, material, and then it can sort of stand up to quite a lot. And that if you want to make strong boots or military materials, or if you want to you know, protect yourself on a motorbike that you have, have to have leather are there kind of plant-based alternatives that are as strong as leather so these materials all of them are still kind of well they're very very new this is why it's such an exciting time many of them are still being kind of developed and worked on to make them perfect leather replacers because that's the whole point of them it's interesting you mention a motorcycle where i remember we gave an award i think it was a few years ago to a company called alien moto who have produced an entire motorcycle suit in vegan leather so that was very exciting i think that i've always said that that um, we can improve our own processes. We can make things better. Just a few years ago, we didn't even have pineapple. We've always had pineapples, but only now have we made pineapple leather. Like we have the technology to allow us to make fashion out of fruit, which we couldn't do just 10 years ago. So I think we can always improve our methods and make things better. But killing an animal will always be killing an animal. And there's there's just no good way to take the life of someone who wants to live. It's it's Peter's belief that animals aren't ours to wear, that their skin is theirs and their wool and their fur belongs to them. And we have to work with what we have, which is mushrooms and pineapples and other things that we can work on to make them better, to make them more durable, to make them last. And also, Another important aspect is that the companies who are creating this, most of them are, or all of them, if I think about it, all of them are really invested in slow fashion. So they want to stop this cycle of things being thrown away and new things constantly being produced with this huge pace that we have right now. So it's in their best interest to make things that last and that are durable. So I believe that this is very much at the forefront of their minds and all of the leather replacement of the future will just become better and better, basically. And we have so much uh, from nature to take cues from or biomimicry, as it's known as. Uh, Spider silk, for example, is an incredible piece of nature's technology, so strong and durable. So we've we've got this amazing brand called Bolt Threads that produce uh, a synthetic silk. Have you had much experience with that? Have you looked at that? Uh, You know, what's your experience of those kinds of sort of synthetic materials that have a biomimicry aspect to them? Oh, yeah. I remember I interviewed them when I uh, was still running my digital vegan fashion magazine. Yes, we did talk about the um, the micro silk, which is uh, their amazing bio silk that mimics the properties of spider silk. Obviously, of course, with Stella McCartney, that's created a dress from this material that has been uh, exhibited at the V&A in London. Uh, This is just one area that shows how humans at our best are really creative and the things that we can come up with that, as you say, are inspired by nature without imposing ourselves on nature and having to take resources that don't belong to us. Uh, I think both threads and the work that they do with this and with their mushroom leather is also a great indication of what the future of fashion will look like and how we can be innovative and create amazing materials that 
are actually designed and thought of as materials for fashion. So I think in the future, there will simply be no need to use, or there isn't any need now, but the use of animals for fashion will become completely obsolete because fashion is also about what's new. And there is nothing new about using an animal's skin or silk or fur, but these materials are so cutting edge and so forward thinking that designers will want to use them just because it's a cool thing. So yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely one to watch. When it comes to the reasons people want to wear fur and wear leather, you pointed it out, is the sort of the desirability, the the uh, the aspirational nature of these of these products. A lot of it is stems from celebrity, from advertising that big brands put these clothes and these products on the faces of famous people, on the bodies of famous people, and it kind of drives this need, this demand. Um, if you wear fur, you're rich and famous, and you have you have that kind of like unobtainable quality about you people you see them strutting down high streets in fur coats because in a way it is associated with opulence and money and power joshua catcher who i spoke to on a previous podcast he talked about the fact that even though all of that aside there are some people who get kicks out of being that villain or being that person who wears fur because they know that the rest of the world is against it they want to be different and still wear fur and still be cruel in despite of the fact that how could we, how could any sane person agree to purchase or invest money in a product or a company that that perpetuates that kind of cruelty in your mind obviously you know we've talked about compassion and we do believe both of us that we both agree that Humans are compassionately natured at our core, but it can't be denied that there is an aspect of human society that is innately cruel, that is innately potentially violent as well. There's this sort of darker aspect to us as people, as creatures, not us as individuals, but as a broader species. Does it ever depress you, uh, that element of us, that the sort of darker nature, all the cruelty? How do you sort of stop yourself getting sucked into that cruelty and, and letting it overwhelm you? So, yeah, it's interesting what you mentioned about these people insisting on wearing fur despite everyone else isn't anymore. Because uh, if you think back, um, well, PTUS is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. And when they were just getting started, it was sort of the other way around. It was most people wanted that high status item and fur was somewhat accepted and the people who were against fur were sort of strange. And through the years, this has completely turned around. Now, all of the biggest designers in the world, like Gucci, Chanel, Versace, Prada, Burberry, like really big names, have publicly come out and said that they don't want to work with fur anymore. So now, most people do know and are aware of the fact that fur is cruel, it's unnecessary, it ruins the planet. There is just no excuse to use fur for fashion, animal fur anymore. And it's not that many people at all. It's very, very few people who still sort of go against the grain or just, you know, want to do what no one else is doing just to because of attention, or it can be because they are unaware still of what happens in the fur trade. And we often inform people. And when we do that, they often completely, you know, change their mind, turn around completely and stop engaging in this industry. I spoke to a designer a while ago who uh, actually worked for a furrier, but then she uh, has now started her own faux fur brand called House of Fluff. Her name is Kim Cantor. It's amazing to see the journey that she's had in changing her mind completely and just going on this completely opposite career path, which is wonderful and so inspiring. Of course, there are people who still, or maybe they might be falling for the pressure from fur companies or the fur industry who are definitely a bit afraid now when all of this um, tide is turning and people are turning away from fur and big name designers are turning away from it. So the industry is scared and they want to stay visible by maybe offering furs to celebrities or even targeting 
students in uh, fashion schools and offering to sponsor them and giving them free furs to use in their collections. It does frustrate me and it saddens me um, to see that people sort of still engage with these industries. So I think that the best thing that any of us can do is to sort of channel our frustration into trying to make a change. I travel around the UK to have guest lectures at universities that have fashion courses, and I speak to students about the way that animals are used in the fur trade and in other sort of skins industries. And I tell them about the uh, the vegan options. I tell them about the designers who work with the vegan options. And my message is always that you can be successful in this industry without having to use animal skins. And even if you're not in the fashion industry, you're just a fashion consumer, you love fashion. There are so many ways to be stylish, to look cool without contributing to cruelty. And I think that in today's world of, in the era of sustainability, where ethics are such an incredible part of the conversation in fashion, it's just, it's such a huge dialogue right now. Um, It's becoming cool to be conscious and people are actually seeing this whole ethical focus as something, something on trend We're just going towards a future where fur will become even more of a no-go than it is today. And we're already seeing the effects of that happening. And I hope it stays that way. That's for sure. Fashion, a lot like seasons, can be, you know, have a tendency to go around in circles. (laughs) What we saw in the 60s comes back. What we saw in the 70s comes back. What we saw in the 90s tries to come back. I hope it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) This is the annoying thing about life on Earth is that things are in cycles and humans do have very short memories but this is where vegan campaigning comes in this is why we exist as campaigners is to continuously remind our fellow human beings that uh, we don't need to uh, use and abuse animals in this way there is absolutely no excuse for it so long may this uh, mission last you uh, obviously uh, released a book in july called vegan style uh talking on on the point of education um how was it to release a book. Um, it was your first book, and how's the how's it been received so far? So yes, this was uh, an amazing adventure for me. I've been working on this book for a very long time, and just the process of it has really shown me how much this movement has grown over the last few years. Because when I was first trying to sell this book, I just uh, sent out my proposal, uh, which was an incredibly stupid thing to do because I hadn't written anything. And if anyone would have bought it, I would have had to write it so quickly. So it was actually quite positive that no one was absolutely nobody was interested back then. Whereas now, when I sent it out, when I was done writing it, which was about, I think maybe a couple of years ago, it was just, I I had lots of potential interest. And in the end, I had several offers, which just showed how big the market for this has become and how people are even more aware of a concept such as vegan style. When I was first telling people uh, five years ago, I'm working on a book about vegan fashion, people didn't understand what I was talking about. They would say, what do you mean? Um, is there meat in clothes? Like they wouldn't, they didn't know what vegan fashion even meant. And now it's, it's such a great time to release this book because we have things like Vegan Fashion Week. We have designers like Hugo Boss uh, and Chanel um, using pineapple leather. It's just a great time to be talking about use, uh, the use of animals in fashion and uh, why it shouldn't be happening and what we should be doing instead. So I was working with Murdoch Books and with uh, Tiller Press, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster in the US. And I've had an amazing time um, working on this book with them and speaking about the book once it was released and speaking to people who have read it. It's really great to see readers, especially noting that this is something that has been missing from the market. That's kind of how I came to the idea of creating this book. Uh, It was because nothing like it was on the market. There were lots of books about veganism and about the food aspect of it, which I suppose is fair because it's sort of the first part of your life that you really look into changing when you go vegan is the food. And those books were beautiful. The recipes were wonderfully presented. Everything was gorgeous. And 
I, as someone with a fashion background, noted that there was nothing like this on all of the other aspects, which is what I bring up in my book, which is your wardrobe, beauty products, decorating your home. Uh, There's a depressingly small uh, menswear chapter (laughs) because there isn't (laughs) as much menswear as we would have hoped. Yeah, menswear is depressingly (laughs) small, generally speaking. It's a very... um uninspiring thing unless you know for sort of generic mainstream men's fashion that is anyway it's um and then vegan men's fashion is pretty pretty. there's an there's definitely opportunity there i mean anyone listening who's interested in in fashion or or business there's definitely a huge gap in the market for a high quality vegan fashion brand at least here in england we've got brave gentleman uh by joshua catcher in new york which is a fantastic and fabulous brand but uh but there isn't anything like that here in the uk we've got will's vegan shoes who obviously great but there is sort of a, an all-round men's fashion brand if you know what i mean so there's definitely space so anyone listening who's got some money yeah start <laughs> time to get started what, what are some of the sort of themes uh, that the book goes into and what what do you what, what's your sort of uh, angle for the book it's called vegan style and the subtitle is your plant-based guide to fashion beauty home and travel and that's sort of how it's divided so there are uh, there is a chapter on creating a vegan wardrobe there's a chapter on accessories which i felt deserved their own chapter because of the leather issues and um because of all the amazing leather alternatives that we have and also because of all of the brands that make incredible um vegan accessories i felt like i uh, i feel like i might need to have a new edition of this book really soon because since we published, there have been so many new developments in vegan leathers, things like mango leather and corn leather. That's not in there because it didn't even exist when it was released. And then there's a beauty chapter where I try to explain what cruelty-free really means. And uh, I try to tell people about the different kinds of uh, certifications that certify um, cruelty-free cosmetics. One of them is PTUS's Beauty Without Bunnies, uh, which is a database where people can search for cosmetics that are vegan on, or that aren't tested on animals. Um, there's a home uh, chapter where I talk about decorating your home, which is something that people might not think of even when going vegan. The fact that We might not shop for furniture as often as we do clothing or makeup. Uh, If we have a sofa, we tend to keep it for several years before replacing it. But it's an area that is growing more and more. Um, We at PETA have our homeware awards where we give awards to um, companies and people that have made uh, interesting uh, progress in vegan-friendly home decor. So that was an interesting chapter to work on. The travel chapter focuses on traveling as a vegan, things that can be useful when traveling. There is everything from a vegan-friendly luggage to what apps you should download. And also, obviously, there is some information on why you should not be supporting any kind of attractions that use animals in any way, such as riding elephants, swimming with dolphins, taking selfies with tigers, that sort of thing. And then there's the menswear chapter uh, that includes a, a bit of vegan men's grooming brands as well. And there's interviews with both Joshua Catcher and Will from uh, Will's Vegan Store. The final two chapters is one of them is um, a Q&A with c- questions that people might have on uh, on transitioning to a vegan lifestyle, which can be anything from how to wash faux fur to why is ethical fashion so expensive. So I try to cover as much as I could for new vegans in there. And the last chapter is 10 easy steps to transition to a vegan wardrobe and a vegan lifestyle. So yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Amazing. Sounds like quite quite the Bible. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> the vegan vegan fashion Bible. But yeah, it sounds it sounds like, you know, this kind of opportunity is just it's just at the beginning. You know, there's so much that can be done uh, to replace the uh, unnecessary animal products in our our fashion and sort of style lives. Um, I'm really excited for the future. And I think there's going to be a lot of innovative new things coming, especially in the lines of sort of like cultured products as well. Obviously, cultured cellular products aren't currently vegan because obviously they use anyone who's interested uh, about this. They do still use bovine fetal serum, don't they, when they grow either meat or um, other sort of animal tissues. But I do believe that in the future, we will be able to grow uh, sort of products that aren't from animals. I mean, on that sort of point, though, uh, as a vegan, as someone who works with Peter, would Peter ever support cultured products if they didn't involve any animal suffering? 
So absolutely, we believe that if uh, at a point where uh, no animal uh, products are used to create these materials, well, from a food point of view, we think that it's um, a good way for people who currently eat meat for them to sort of get their fix without uh, using uh, using animals. Uh, we also do believe that uh, there isn't really a need for anyone to wait until these products appear on the market. We can go vegan today with what we have. We have amazing vegan options today. So if you're waiting for cultured meat to become available, you don't have to. Today is the best time ever to, to try a vegan lifestyle. And I would say the same for Uh, lab-grown leather, which I think is quite an exciting development. And I think from an environmental point of view, it will be interesting as well to see how that is developed. But you don't need to hold out for that. There are amazing um, vegan materials and vegan fashion available today. Um, We obviously have a list of PETA-approved vegan brands on the website if you want to learn more about vegan shopping. Um, And also our fashion awards every year where we celebrate and highlight designers, brands, and individuals who've made amazing progress for, uh, for vegan fashion and animal rights in fashion. So these developments are are interesting for the people who currently use these uh, this sort of thing, but there is no need to to wait for that to make the change. So I always like to end the episode uh, on this note or this question. Uh, if you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're a vegan. And if I gave you one vegan dish, one book and one music album, what would you take with you? So one vegan dish. I don't know if it qualifies as a dish, but I haven't an incredible sweet tooth. I'm the most like sugar loving person you'll ever meet. So I would probably take a really nice chocolate cake, a vegan chocolate cake. What was the other one? A book. I'm currently reading this amazing book called Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It's a book about the music scene in the 70s. And it's just amazing. It's uh, so inspiring and such a beautiful, beautiful uh, read. And I just don't want it to end. So it w- I think it would be a nice desert island read. And an album, yeah, Nirvana, never mind. No competition there. My favorite album ever. Amazing. Good choice in music. Personal favorite as well. Session committee, so thank you so much for joining us on the PBM podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you are interested in following Sasha's work, you'll be able to find all the links in the description. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the Plant Based News Podcast. We'll be back next time with more veganism, fashion, food, technology, nutrition, animal rights, the environment, and everything else in between. See you next time. Mm-hmm.